Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Eli Harwood. Eli is a therapist who specializes in the intricate art and science of attachment relationships, trauma, adoption, and parenting. For over 17 years, Eli has supported her clients in processing their stories, relationships, and coming into a deeper understanding of their attachment experiences, desires, and who they wish to become. Eli holds a master's in counseling psychology, is trained in EMDR level one and two, uses the therapy modality TBRI, trust-based relationship intervention, and is the author of Securely Attached, a book designed to help individuals forge lasting, loving relationships. In its simplest terms, Eli's practice is about drawing people deeper into their own hearts so that they can become more fully connected to the ones who matter most, sons and daughters, spouses and parents, friends and families. So, Eli, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being Thank my guest. Thank you for having me. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Um, I gave a brief introduction about who you are, but so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got to who and where you are today, yes. please? I'll give my little personal spiel first, because we are all people before we are anything else. Um, which is I am a person who was born into a family that had a whole cornucopia of unresolved insecure things like domestic violence, mental illness, childhood sexual abuse, uh, alcoholism, addiction. And so my journey started um, in a really insecure place, which I think is obviously how my passion for resolving insecure attachment <laughs> began. And I eventually through my growing up process um, was given an incredible gift where my mother made a decision when I was around nine years old to acknowledge that she was struggling with pretty serious mood disorder um, issues and went and got help. And in getting help, she paved the path for all of us to begin to acknowledge what was happening in our family dynamics, in our own mental health, and to begin to heal and to come up with new ways of relating and being together and understanding ourselves and our story, um, which led to my professional story, which is when I was coming out of college, I was actually teaching. I was teaching a local high, a private high school and all of the kids kept coming to me during lunch and telling me about what was going on in their families. And I was like, I don't know how to help with this, but I know this is important and this needs help. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to fight it anymore. I'm going to be a therapist. This is happening. And so I went to grad school and during my own therapy and being in grad school, I started to really dig into the attachment research. And it was in those spaces that I could really recognize, oh, this is some of why I feel the way I feel in close relationships. This, this is representative of a lot of the patterns that I've developed. And these are the keys that I need to get to a place of healing. And then I have been practicing for the last 17 years with my incredible clients um, and then decided to start running my mouth on the internet and started what's called Attachment Nerd, which is um, all my social media platforms and on my website, um, 
basically in service of helping people understand attachment and how to build secure attachments with themselves, with their children, with their partners. Um, and then I wrote my book, Securely Attached. And now I'm here chatting with you. Everything you ever needed to know. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Thank yeah. you for sharing. Um, it's funny. Whenever I hear about a therapist with a therapist, mm -hmm. it just always seems so different to me. Um, when did you start therapy in your journey with, mm -hmm. I guess, mental health? Was it before you decided mm -hmm. you wanted to be a therapist mm -hmm. or it was before. After? And I think that it's sometimes after for people. But for me, I, I became a therapist by being a client first. It was being a therapy client that really mm -hmm. helped me to understand like this is a this is a path for me as well. Um, so I started going to therapy when I was in my early 20s, um, in part because of what was getting activated in my attachment relationships. You know, I would feel fairly confident in myself in general. And then I would get close to someone and it was like this unbelievable rush of insecurity in my nervous system. And it was very confusing and disorienting. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I I would feel it even with people who I knew weren't a great match for me. It's like, I know this is not enough for me. And yet this like intense urge to feel close to this person and keep them close is overwhelming me. Like, what is this? And what's this about? So that's when I entered therapy for the first time. Now, also your mother making mm -hmm. a decision to, I guess, stop the, the mm -hmm. cycles of everything that was happening mm -hmm. that was unhealthy, I feel probably played a big part in you ending up Absolutely. where you are now. Um, so because you, you had that beginning with your mom and you started therapy and then you made a decision to mm -hmm. be where you are now, how do you feel like your journey with attachment um, became more or less based on those things? Well, I mean, I would say therapy has a huge impact on our ability to feel connected to other people in that it's a relational process. So if I'm meeting with a therapist and watching my mom go and meet with her therapist and it's, it's becoming this normalized thing in our family system, which by the way, it was not normalized in my mom's generation. She got a lot of shit for going to therapy. Like, well, why do you need to do that? You know, just, just stop feeling that way. Basically just move on from these unbelievably depressive thoughts that you're experiencing. Um, but so she normalized it for me. So going to therapy didn't mean something's deeply wrong with me. Um, I'm messed up. I'm weird. I'm strange. It was like, it just means, Hey, I'm struggling and I could use a relational space to get support around that. And so it's this great resource to help you do that. So I think that it really helped me learn how to lean on people. That wasn't something that was totally comfortable for me. I knew how to cling to people at times, but I didn't know how to really lean in and let people see me, know me and care for me. Um, so I think that was a huge part of my healing, my attachment patterns and process. Yeah. What things would you say that you, you learned about yourself and your relationship with attachment? In therapy? Um, mm -hmm. well, I learned that because my mama was not well when I was little, she was really not well. Her, she had untreated PTSD and a serious mood disorder. And my dad is an alcoholic. And so he was pretty checked out. So because I didn't have anyone to help me regulate when I was little, I took on the role of being the regulator. So I took care of everybody else's needs and I made sure that everyone else was okay. And in doing that, 
I had to sort of cut off or ignore some of my very normal, tender relational needs. So there was kind of this dual development happening. There was like an external development I was doing in terms of my role. I was playing a role in my family because my family wasn't well. And then there was an internal reality that that role was affecting, which is that I wasn't ever getting to be messy and have deep needs and be authentic and be regulated by somebody else. I was performing my way forward. And so, you know, in my therapy process, a lot of it was just about really reconciling those two things. Like, yeah, you really did take care of everybody else. And that's amazing. And also you weren't okay. You looked okay, but you weren't actually okay. And then I don't know. I guess the biggest discovery is the amount of grief that was present in my nervous system. I I once was in a process talking about early childhood and my therapist was helping me kind of go back into my house of origin, my family of origin house and walk through some of the rooms. And I don't know what happened, but it was like I entered this space on the stairs by the kitchen. And all of a sudden it was like this sadness inhabited my body. And I cried so hard in my therapist's office that I had to puke in her trash can. Yeah. So I learned about myself that I was really sad and scared when I was a kid, even though I looked very confident and competent. And that both things could be true at the same time. Duality. Yes, of course. So two things. First, I love the fact that your mother modeled that going to therapy didn't mean that something was mm -hmm. deeply wrong with you and kind of passed the baton for you to, to pick up where mm -hmm. she left off. And then two, you mentioned that you were performing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that a lot of us may not realize that trying so hard to fit in and look normal mm -hmm. and and normal isn't even healthy mm -hmm. for for the, ma the majority of the times like we are performing we're going out into the world and saying yes i'm okay yes i feel good yes i have mm -hmm. all my stuff together when we actually yes. don't and to be able to recognize that i think was huge yeah, absolutely and healing and healing um, you know, interestingly enough, though, as you if you're a performer, so if you're someone who performed your way through childhood insecurity, when you start to heal, you perform less. And when you perform less, all the people around you are like, that person is falling apart. And the truth is, is you're actually coming together. What you're doing is you're bringing together these parts of yourself that have not been allowed to coexist. Um, and you're feeling more authentic. And in feeling more authentic, a lot of your relationships will have to change because people have adapted to that performance experience of you. And the relationships that really are beneficial in your life will adapt along with you as you learn to accept, yeah, sometimes I'm struggling or sometimes I feel lost or sometimes I need help. I'm not just always in the place of having it together. I think the people that are professional performers that will look ugly to them mm -hmm. because there's this fear of being exposed that you don't have all your stuff together. Like, yeah. you know, how, how are we going to post a picture on Instagram of us laying in bed, not looking well, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. not instead of not on a trip or posting pictures of drinks and living our best life, yes. you know? Yes. Um, but I think that those, maybe those friends falling off as you start to heal may not be such a bad thing. No, not all relationships are meant to exist for our entire lifetime. 
many are meant to be there for us in seasons as a part of our development, but not as integral to it for the rest of time. Okay. Um, just to circle back a bit so that our listeners can have a better understanding of attachment. Mm -hmm. um, can we define exactly what attachment is and how it's associated with relationships? Yes. So attachment is the neurobiological drive that all human beings have to develop close relationships with other human beings. Attachment in early childhood is necessary for survival. So no baby survives without an attachment figure, right? They, you can't crawl, a human being can't crawl out of the uterus and grab a piece of bark and some moss as a blanket and survive. That's not possible neurologically. So attachment is the way in which we survive through those early years of childhood because we are borrowing the brain development of our caregiver. And our caregiver is essentially operating as sort of an external bonus brain while our brain is growing so that we can have a longer period of time to grow our brains. But it doesn't just function in early childhood. It continues for the rest of our life. Human beings are adapted to relationships. So when we feel seen, heard, understood, in rhythm with other people, it helps us feel safe. Because even as grownups, if there's three of us and a saber-toothed tiger, we are far more likely to scare that tiger off. And sometimes that saber-toothed tiger is depression. And sometimes that saber-toothed tiger is you lost your job. And sometimes that saber-toothed tiger is oppression, right? Oppressive systems. We do better when we are connected to other people. And so attachment is this instinct in us to have close relationships to help us survive and thrive. But not all attachment experiences are secure. <laughs> so it's like this is an adaptation. Attachment is a human adaptation that helps us survive and thrive in life. But not everyone gets the same level of adaptation because not everyone is born into the arms of caregivers who are secure themselves. And so if you're born into the arms of caregivers who never experienced secure caregiving, they will likely pass it down to you unless they are cycle breakers. <laughs> the kind of people that are like, I will learn this. I will learn how to be secure so that my kids experience this. Um, but otherwise, if someone hasn't put in their work and they had an insecure experience, they're going to pass down that pattern of relating to their children. How's that for a mouthful? <laughs> that was great. Um, I was thinking that, you know, sometimes we make it to a point where we start to heal or we recognize unhealthy patterns or attachment styles. And now we see our parents differently. Mm. And we, you know, we may say to them, well, I'm realizing that I didn't have mm -hmm. a lot of healthy mm -hmm. anything in my childhood. You did a good job. You did your mm -hmm. best. But also, there were a lot of unhealthy things. And now saying that or expressing those things, people may get offended because they, they feel mm -hmm. like you're telling them that they didn't, they weren't a good parent or they weren't a good provider. Like how, what are some struggles that you see with that? Well, I want to say this. When we recognize that we did not have a secure attachment experience growing up, telling our caregivers that is not a necessary part of the healing process. And we need to have realistic expectations about whether or not our parents have developed a more secure way of relating since that point in time. Because if they haven't, 
they are not going to be able to process that information in a way that is relational and attuned. So the irony is the more secure your parent is, the more they are going to be able to take negative feedback in a non-offended way. So if you had a really secure experience growing up, you can go to your parent and say, yeah, when you did X, Y, or Z, that was really hard and painful, or that season I felt totally alone. And your parent's going to be able to receive that and say, I'm so sorry. That's, that makes so much sense. I hear you. I get that. But if you had an insecure attachment experience and you're processing that and you go to your parents and you're like, you really dropped the ball on this and this and this, they are probably going to feel affronted and offended and confused because 99% of parents do the very best with what they have. So just because you didn't have a secure attachment experience with your parents doesn't mean they didn't do everything they knew to do to give you one. It just means they didn't have the resources and the information, the mental health, the community necessary to do that. And so there's kind of this interesting desire in us when we recognize this wound to like have our parents heal along with us. <laughs> and I would say that happens pretty rarely unless they've already started their own journey, unless they have already started to consider this, you know, they're following the attachment nerd and they've called you up and said, I'm so sorry. I was not like that. I wish I had been like that. Well, yeah, maybe then they can have some of those conversations with you, but your healing process is far more about reconciling yourself to your younger selves than it is about trying to reconcile your story to your parents in the present day. Your parents are probably not gonna be the people who bear witness to this pain because they will likely feel so much shame that they can't. And so instead of witnessing your pain, they will project it back at you or just shut down or kind of go martyry. You know, I hear a lot of parents will say things like, Oh, well, I'm sorry I wasn't the perfect parent. I mean, never mind the fact that I was working three jobs and blah, 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 blah. You know, there's this defensiveness that comes up. And it comes up because their intention was never to hurt you. And again, I said 99% of parents because there are children who are born to sociopaths. And if you're one of those people, I see you. I know it's not the same. Your parent intended to hurt you, and I believe you. That is fucked up beyond belief. But the 99% of parents are just unable to process the nightmare that they had a negative impact on their kid. Because none of us want that. Um, now, something that we haven't spoken about yet that can have a huge impact on attachment is trauma. Mm -hmm. In your personal experience, and because of your expertise, how do you define mm -hmm. trauma and how would you say trauma can have an effect on attachment? Okay. I define trauma as any experience that makes you feel a level of threat or danger around your physical safety, your relational belonging, or your sense of dignity. And so it's not just being at 9-11 right? That's capital T physical trauma. There is a physicality to that trauma. There was ob obviously a relational element in that people caused the trauma intentionally. Um, but overall, if, that, if you were there in the Twin Towers, your experience will be primarily capital T physical trauma. But most of the trauma that people come into therapy struggling to process and relieve is relational trauma. And 
as human beings, that attachment drive, that need to feel seen, heard, felt, regulated by somebody else is a core primal human need. And if you're in relationship with a caregiver who cannot give you those things, so you cry and they say, you, you want me to give you something to cry about, you know, or you're scared and they laugh at you like, you're such a sissy. Oh my gosh, you're just such a wimp. They humiliate you in the midst of your tenderness. They dismiss you in the midst of the tenderness. They overreact to your tenderness. You know, they become possessive. You're right. This is dangerous. We shouldn't go anywhere. We're not going to leave the house for three weeks. You know, those types of insecure reactions are traumatic to the nervous system because a child needs a caregiver who can help them feel connected and safe. And if there is nobody who can do that, then that develops in the system as a form of trauma. And so now when I come into relationships, especially close attachment relationships, like a romance or a best friendship, or when I have my own children, there's going to be this activation of some of that trauma material that as I get close to people, my body will anticipate that I am going to be whatever fill in that blank was harmed, dismissed, humiliated, because I have now an anticipation that that's what happens in close relationships. Um, there were a lot of people after 9-11 that wouldn't, wouldn't want to go anywhere near ground zero, right? Because their trauma had said, this is, this is, this is the place, right? And similarly, when we have relational trauma, it comes up in our relationships. So our relationships are the ground zero, if that makes sense. Perfect sense. Um, and the way you, you made it like so easy to understand, like, and the, the example of nine eleven, like that is, like you said, big T trauma, mm -hmm. but also if we've experienced something like being humiliated by a parent mm -hmm. or not feeling safe yes. more than one time, those little, little T traumas over and over and over yes. can accumulate and get heavy as well. Preach. There, there's a collection. They become a big T trauma, right? So if every time I'm sad, I'm ignored, that's going to add up big time. And it's actually not only going to become a traumatic experience that I think about, it's actually going to get integrated into my sense of self. So now there's this internal narrative that says, I'm too much. I'm a burden. And now I, now that trauma becomes a truth about me and not just a place I don't want to go in the world. Right? And that's some really complicated stuff to heal from. Wow. It seems like the goal is always to get to a point of secure attachment. Um, how difficult can it be to get there and maintain it in a relationship if we've had some issues in our past that have caused us to mm -hmm. feel insecure in our mm -hmm. attachment? There's a lot of variables that affect how hard it will be. Uh, to build a secure attachment? For instance, um, do you have support now in your life? <laughs> do you have people now around you that are warm and empathetic and understanding? That's going to help. Do you have um, any barriers? Are there barriers there? Like, for instance, do you think it's shameful to go to therapy? Well, it's going to be a lot harder to heal some of that stuff if you're not willing to reach out to helpers in the world. Um, and then the level of trauma that you experienced it is harder to heal 
from a dismissive experience, a dismissive attachment experience or an avoidant attachment experience means you grew up in a home where nobody knew how to handle feelings. And so everybody either intellectualized them, spiritualized them, ignored them, but no one knew what to do with the feelings. So everybody sort of collectively swallows feelings. That's hard to heal from, but that's not as hard to heal as an experience where your caregiver sexually abused you. Yeah, that's going to be harder. Or where you were constantly competed with by your parent, your caregiver was threatened by you and always made you feel like you were doing things to make them feel bad. Like that type of a disorganizing experience is really hard to heal from. Um, who you have in your corner is going to make all the difference. So if you're going to do some healing around your attachment, I would say, look around you for the people that you can tell are generally compassionate, accepting of others, warm, honest, vulnerable themselves, and, and slowly start collecting those people in your world and investing in them. Because as you do some of this vulnerable work, you're going to need that person to call up and say like, I'm having one of those moments where I'm pretty convinced that I'm a piece of shit. You think I'm a piece of shit? <laughs> and you know, you need that person on the other line to be like, no, of course you're not a piece of shit. You got no offender bender. It happens. Did you do it on purpose? No, but I did like for a second, look out my window and they're like, okay, um, it's okay. We all do this. I've been an offender bender. And then you're experiencing that kind of supportive, co-regulative experience in the present day, which is helping to heal the fact that you didn't have that when you were growing up. So it kind of depends on where you are. If you live in Antarctica, I'm guessing it's harder to heal your attachment. I, I don't know. I don't have any actual data on this, but like just the sheer volume of people there. Like, I don't know. It's probably harder to find enough people. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe there's so few people that everybody's really close and intimate. I don't know. I've never been there. <laughs> um, okay. So trying to get into more of the meat and potatoes mm -hmm. of attachment. Mm -hmm. Are there different types of attachment styles and what can cause each one? Yes. So just to make things confusing, there are actually two bodies of research around attachment. So there's a body of research by the social psychologists, and then there's a body of research by the developmental psychologists. Um, and the word style comes from the social psychologists. And you hear that a lot, kind of like, these are the three styles. And they usually say anxious, avoidant, and secure. Um, in the developmental psychology, which is my jam because I'm most familiar with it, I trust it more, there's more longitudinal data with it, we are actually looking at a relationship, not a style. So a pattern between two people. Um, and I think that's really important because I had a very different attachment experience with my mom than with my dad. And that's true for most people. Like they can have multiple parents and therefore multiple attachment experiences. We do tend to have one primary attachment figure and that tends to be the pattern we most deeply internalize and we most regularly replicate. So in that way, we kind of have a style in my opinion, um, but it's not a one for one. So you can have a pattern and then be with someone else who has that same pattern and their pattern can activate a different pattern in you. Um, so it's not boxes. I always say people don't belong in boxes. Uh, but 
when we look at the four patterns, we can learn a lot about generally what was our experience, what was our experience with each of the different caregivers in our lives, and then what do we need to do in order to let go of some of the insecure patterns and move into more of a secure pattern. So four categories. I'm going to explain the secure category first because it's what we're aiming for. So in a secure pattern, a child grows up in an environment where a parent is emotionally attuned and available. So the child learns, if I'm upset, I can reach for my parent, my parent will help me regulate, and I can receive that regulation and, and reset. The insecure types are insecure avoidant, insecure resistant, ambivalent, and disorganized. So the insecure avoidant is a child who grows up in a home where the caregivers are not able to effectively notice what they feel, attune to what they feel, or regulate them in what they feel. And so the child learns it's actually easier for me if I don't show what I feel, if I just swallow it. That is easier for me. And so that child learns to avoid and distract. So when emotional tenderness comes into the room, that child is going to look at the toy. They are going to fidget with their fingers. They are going to do whatever they can to look away from their caregiver in order to try to keep things as calm as possible. The ambivalent resistant child is a child who has caregivers who are intermittently there for them. So they are sometimes available and able to soothe and sometimes not. And that is confusing to the child. Now, no parent does this perfectly. So I don't have anyone to think like, oh gosh, that one time on Wednesday, I didn't respond to my crying kid. No, this is far more entrenched than that. There is a significant amount of non-effective responses that are patterned in the sense that there's enough of them that the child's brain says, we're playing Russian roulette here. I don't know who I'm going to get today. I might get the parent that can soothe me or I might not. Um, and so the child develops hypervigilance. There's an insecurity in the relationship that leads that child to feel like they must be on watch always. So even when the caregiver is soothing and responding, it doesn't actually make them so feel soothed and they tend to protest at that point. And then the last category, this part is like just breaks my heart. And I kind of want to slow down in what I'm saying about it, which is that these are kids whose parents are frightening to them. So there is emotional, physical, sexual abuse, neglect, serious drug addiction, serious mental illness. But in the other cases of insecure, the caregivers were inadequate to be a source of regulation. In a disorganized experience, the caregivers are a source of dysregulation. Let me say that again. I think I said that wrong. In the other insecure categories, the caregivers were inadequate to be a source of soothing regulation. In the disorganized category, the caregivers themselves are a source of dysregulation. So the caregiver is frightening and scary, which means I have nowhere to go when I am upset and confused and tender, because if I run towards my caregiver, I'm in more danger and not less danger. So that is obviously of the, of the insecure categories, that is the one that is the most traumatic and the hardest to resolve because the pattern that we want to get to of reaching for others, leaning in, letting them care for us and receiving is terrifying. Leaning in feels like the beginning of someone abandoning us, harming us, being dangerous with us in some way. And all of this is happening 
at a very young age. I guess, I guess the younger you are when you're experiencing these things, the more of an effect it has on the way you have a relationship with attachment. Mm-hmm. Now, does it also affect brain development? Yes. So I said this before, but the human brain is a regulatory organ, a relationally regulatory organ. So when we are developing, we're relying on a caregiver to help us co-regulate. And that is what helps us feel safe. And when we feel safe, our brain says, go ahead and grow some more gray matter. You good. We don't need to focus on the amygdala right now. We don't need to focus on that fight flight response because there's this really safe, responsive grown up right here who's got my back. And so because I have that grown up there, I can learn how to color a little bit closer. I can focus on paying attention to the bugs in the window that I think are so cool. Like I can do my math homework. If I don't feel safe in my home, so if I don't have a sense that I belong, that I am wanted, that I am cared for, that I am nurtured, well, now I fundamentally feel anxious in my body and in the world. And instead of being able to focus on those bugs, I'm having to work on regulating my body somehow. Um, which is making it harder to think, which in the, we have a lot of good neuro data on this, that the children who have serious trauma in their childhood homes will often have amygdalas that are twice the size of children who grow up in a safe, secure home. So the reactivity part of the brain is doubling in physical size in a child who has relational attachment trauma. And that doesn't like shrink later. That that doesn't just go away. You can rewire the brain. You can help it to heal. But like that structure is developed at that size. And so that's why it's so much harder to heal from that disorganizing, scary experience, because the structure of the brain has now evolved for survival as opposed to for connection, learning, growth, empathy, those types of things. And I was just thinking too, so now you're basically wired to be anxious and you're a child. Yes. And now you have to take this backpack that you mm-hmm. carry that's full of anxiety and try and go out in the world and function. Yeah. You don't know how to have a secure attachment. Like you are going to have such a difficult experience mm-hmm. just trying to live a quote unquote normal mm-hmm. life. And then I think about, you know, like kids in school with uh, taking tests or social anxiety and all those things, it would be so much harder to be a good student because you don't even know how to feel safe in your yes. body. So we probably have all these mm-hmm. kids who didn't have a good schooling experience or who couldn't reach their full potential mm-hmm. because they weren't able mm-hmm. to rest. Absolutely. And then add in any other variables, right? Like I don't know, you're a kid of color in the U.S. or right now I'm just very aware of all the children in Israel and Palestine. Like you have these environmental traumas going on around you, um, systemic dilemmas and traumas on top of that. Now try to learn, right? Now try to now try to develop, now try to grow. Like that's going to be a lot more challenging than if you feel like I belong, I have my people, I am safe, I am understood. Well, now I can go into the classroom and someone's explaining how to solve a word problem. And I might be able to actually read that sentence with some comprehension. Um, There are some kids who 
academia is their refuge. So they grow up in these really terrible homes, but then they find a refuge in their academic kind of world. And so they succeed at school, even though on the inside, they're still all torn up. And that's usually about some kind of a genetic predisposition. Like those are just kids that like, that's their jam. They were pretty much wired to be that way. Um, but even then, those children often struggle to develop other parts of themselves. So maybe they're able to get their grades going and whatever, but they really struggle to develop close friendships that stick or to know how to handle their emotions or um, like side hobbies, sports, music. It's like all they can do is one thing. Um, but I want to say that because there, you'll have listeners who are like, yeah, my family was and I still got straight A's. How did that happen? Well, you had that was there was some kind of a protective factor for you, whether it was genetically or maybe you had access to some really great teachers and your teachers made you feel safe. And so then school actually was an easy place to feel safe. Um, and you went home and home was where it was hard to feel safe. So, I mean, there's a lot of complexity in this. But in general, the attachment relationship is having a massive impact on what a child's brain is doing, how it is allocating resources, and what they are learning about relationships. Like we are mentoring our children in what they should expect and how other people will treat them. So if I treat my child rough and tough and tumble, I don't prepare them for rough and tough and tumbleness. I prescribe them rough and tumbleness. I, I, I make it seem normal. I normalize it versus if I am warm and accepting and attuned and thoughtful, I have boundaries, but I am compassionate in those boundaries. Well, now my child has that as a prescription. They expect their relationships to be healthy because they've experienced that. That's wonderful. I mean, what a gift to be able to give a child, especially if maybe you didn't have that same experience mm. um, because you're, you know, and, and I was just thinking about <clears throat> if someone is now the cycle breaker and they're giving their child a better experience, mm -hmm. but as they start to heal because the people that they came up with um, or their parents or just their family system isn't in tune with healing. Mm -hmm. Now the child may see them getting pushback for just being mm -hmm. healthy, yes. or it may be so much more difficult to try and be a parent just because what you're trying to do and the, the, the things you're trying to change have been so ingrained yes. in the family system for so long that it may be cultural. Mm -hmm. So it may be going against your family, the family's culture and tradition. Mm -hmm. So that could be so mm -hmm. hard for people trying to change mm -hmm. these patterns. Oh Absolutely. Goodness. Absolutely. And we often, the thing about generational trauma is it doesn't get passed down officially. It gets passed down subconsciously. You know, no one says, I am going to stop relating to your feelings and emotions because, you know, when your father died in the war, I just no longer could cope. And so this is why I'm doing this. No one says that. That parent just has a break of some sort and stops relating and stops giving. And then that child becomes the parent and doesn't really know why, but there's this deep and intense sense of like, there will be no feelings here. You will not have feelings. And then that gets passed down. And now someone decides to break the cycle and they're not even actually totally sure what they're breaking. They just know whatever this is, is not good. I know what I want it to be. I want it to be secure, but there's often not a story to make it make sense. 
what was it that happened? Why did this happen? You know, is this a result of enslavement of my ancestors? Well, I don't know, because I don't have the paperwork to go back and figure out who my ancestors were and what exactly happened to them. You know, is this a result of my ancestors surviving the Holocaust or lost during World War II or Vietnam? Or, you know, I, I don't know, because in a traumatized system, there are no stories. There are just deep edicts. Thou shall not feel. Thou shall not cry. Thou shall not be angry. Like, and so when you're breaking those cycles and you're allowing your children to have feelings, you're coming up against this like almost religious sensibility in your family system of like, that is not what we do. But nobody knows why. <laughs> but why? Why don't we cry? Right. <laughs> why don't? Well, well, we don't do that because someone might rip us apart from each other. And so we're not going to do it. You know, whatever. What's what's the generational history that led to this? I don't know. But I what we do know is that secure caregiving is not dismissive or harsh or overly anxious. It's connected. It's calm. It's accepting. It's receptive. Yes. Yes. All those. Well, because you specialize in working with mm-hmm. parents, um, how do you help parents prevent repeating cycles related to their attachment stories? What are some things that you do? Well, the first thing I do with any parent who's saying, I want to break a cycle or I want to do better with my kids is I say, great. Tell me what it was like when you were a kid. And most people are like, I'm looking for more like the solutions thing, not so much the like <laughs> inspecting my childhood thing. And I respond and say, that is a, that is the very first step of the solutions. Because if you don't process what it was that happened to you in childhood, it will continue to remain active in your nervous system. And when your child has a meltdown about not getting a second piece of birthday cake, there will be an activation of the things that happen to you without you even knowing it. It's called a body memory or an implicit memory. And so we have to do the work to reflect and grieve and feel so that our kids aren't carrying that non-narrative emotional burden that comes from attachment trauma. After you've done that work, which by the way, I wrote a book to do that work. So if anyone needs that book, cause that's like a sure lady, but how? That's what my book is about. Securely Attached is that. It's a guided journal to help anyone who wants to process their early beginnings and identify the way those beginnings have affected their attachment patterns and then learn how to develop close relationships now so that you aren't leaning on your children. So if if I don't have anybody else I lean on, I am going to transmit trauma to my kids. That's just period. Because that means I'm not being co-regulated by anybody else. There's no one else helping me feel my feels, understand myself, process my story. And so I am going to, in some way, shape or form, have to cope with that reality. And that coping will be transmitted to my children. So you have to figure out what happened to you. What did that do in your attachment story and narrative? And then what now do you need to do in order to establish secure relationships in your life so that your children can just be your children and not your healers and not the bearers of your unresolved stuff? With everything that we've covered and learning about how attachment can have such a huge effect on us and and who we show up as in the world, I think one of the biggest things is romantic relationships because intimacy brings out insecurity in such a huge way. Um, And it may feel like 
if you have a, a difficult relationship with attachment, that finding and maintaining a romantic relationship mm-hmm. can almost be impossible. Yes. But just because it feels that way, does that mean that that's something that's always the case? No. No. So if you struggle to feel secure in that specific romantic relationship, it is because your attachment stuff is getting activated. Because in our childhood, we attach to our family of origin, our caregivers. That's where we have our identity, our belonging. That's who we go to when we have need, when we have specifically a tender need. But in our adulthood, we tend to do that with our romantic partners. So as you get close to someone in romance, all those feelings of like, do I belong? Am I worthy? Am I too much? Am I not enough? Should I shut it down? That's all going to come up there, which is why those relationships are so important in our lives. And I don't think everyone has to have a romantic relationship. You can do this with a best friend, but that sense of you're my person is where we are able to identify what has never been cared for in ourselves. And in a healthy romantic relationship, we sort of do this little reveal of those things. And we intimately let somebody in on the parts of us that we would not post on Instagram. And that process of letting somebody in is part of how we build security and intimacy. And if we're with someone who's really a good fit for our needs, they will fall more in love with us as we do that. And we will fall more in love with them as they reveal themselves to us. Um, But it's real vulnerable and it's real tender. And if we're not ready to grieve (laughs) and to be vulnerable and to learn and grow, then it will be really hard to maintain a romantic relationship. Thank you for that amazing explanation, (laughs) because it's true. Um, The things that are buried the deepest, I feel like, get exposed the most when you have to be vulnerable. And especially if you if you struggle Mm -hmm. with attachment, it's Mm going to seem like it could be super daunting to be able to maintain and stay in. So that was something that I really wanted you to talk about. I know a lot of really confident, smart, thoughtful, successful people who when they enter into the terrain of romance feel incredibly small scared unsure and insecure and it's very confusing because how can i exist like this in these spaces and like this when i try to get close to somebody and the answer is there's unresolved attachment stuff here that you need to attend to so that you can separate the past from the present because hi, I really like this person and I want to talk with them and they didn't call me back um, right away. Well, okay, your adult self can process that and recognize like they probably had a meeting or they're probably busy. Your child attachment self may not be able to process that. It's like, they don't like me. They found somebody else. This is it. This is the end. It's ending now. Um, And so you have to be able to look back into your childhood and go, oh, well, when my dad left without an announcement and never came back, that left a mark on me. And now when any anyone is um, non-responsive for a tiny bit, it triggers the crap out of me. But that's about my dad and that. And that's not about, you know, a two-hour delay in a phone call response. My body is telling me that, but that's a memory, not about today. And so it's really when we look back that we can begin to make sense of what's happening in the present. Wow. 
I think being able to connect those two things, like if you may have had a big event that makes you fearful in childhood, like like you said, like your father not coming back mm-hmm. or your father leaving, yes. that's going to show up until yeah. you revisit it mm-hmm. and try to make peace with it and have some healing. Did you that. ever watch the Casper the Friendly Ghost movie when we were growing up with Christina Ricci? doesn't matter if you didn't but like there's Mm -hmm. this casper the friendly ghost movie and basically all of the ghosts what they figure out is that the ghosts are unfinished business and they have to figure out like what the unfinished business is so that the ghost can like pass on to the next states and i think with our attachment wounds we have pieces of unfinished business what is it we haven't truly acknowledged or felt or let go of or edited. There's a, there's an editing process too. You know, as a kid, I'm just using this example as of a parent leaving, but let's say, you know, your, your dad left, like I described, um, you're probably going to interpret that as you being inadequate because you're, you're a kid. And unless anyone else is really helping you process that, then your assumption is I wasn't good enough to stick around for. And now you have this internalized narrative that when someone doesn't respond or chooses not to stick around, it's because I'm not good enough for that. Well, that just got to get edited because it will get in the way of you receiving love from people in the present. And the people in the present will get real tired of trying to convince you that you're lovable if you won't let go of this narrative, because then their love will be less powerful than the wound that you had in childhood. And so we want to let the love of the present begin to take over the pain of the past. And that can only happen when we are willing to see ourselves differently, to look back and go, I was just a little kid. There's nothing I could have done. That, that didn't make me unlovable. Like, yeah, sure. My, my, my socks and shoes were stinky. But like, that wouldn't make me leave a kid. Right. That's not enough. That was such an amazing analogy. And, um, I think anyone who listens to this episode that may struggle with um, feeling inadequate mm-hmm. will resonate Good. with that. So yeah. thank you for that. There's there's something that you talked about, um, the four A's of mm-hmm. connection. And I saw it on one of your posts. So I wanted to ask, what are the four A's of connection and how do they help children establish security and feeling loved and seen by their caregivers? And we, we talk about how it affects children but also now that we've established that that child is still inside mm-hmm. of us, I also think that even talking about that and how it affects children can also give us some insight into who we may be now. If totally. Yeah. As, as I teach about secure attachment and what to do for our children now, what I hear a lot on the Internet is like, I needed to hear that from my inner child. Like I needed to know that to help me realize what I didn't have. And I, that, how cool is that? I love the Internet. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so the four A's. The first A is we all need attunement. We need a caregiver who can recognize our internal state and connect to us emotionally. So when we're sad, we need a caregiver who can go, you're sad, I'm with you, right? And when we're excited, we need a caregiver who can be like, what, that was amazing. I love that. I'm so glad I saw you. You totally touched the ceiling. That was so cool. You know, whatever the thing is that we are joining in an emotional state that we're recognizing and we're joining an emotional state because that helps us regulate and feel connected. We need attention. And I love saying this one because we live in a culture that like has this weird thing with attention. Like somehow 
if your kid wants attention, they're like attention hungry and that's bad, but like all people need attention. <laughs> like we, we need people to pay attention to us, to notice and study us. And, you know, I, the power of someone telling us something about ourselves, something positive, seeing us like, oh, that's amazing. So our kids need us to be around enough that we are paying attention to them, that we're not just on our phones, that we are here and we are watching them watch the world and they're watching us watch the world and we're engaging. Um, we need affection. So we need the expression of love, an outward external expression of love from our caregivers. And that might be um, different for every kid. Like every kid needs a different form of affection, but like touch and I love you and um, rubbing up next to you, leaning heads together, um, expressing love outwardly. Um, and then we also need a sense of admiration that is appropriate. And I'm going to say that like that because we don't need our parents or anybody else to idealize us. That's not helpful. Like it is not helpful to say you're a perfect kid and you do no wrong. That actually, we know from research, makes kids stumble because if I'm perfect now, I'm anxious because I have to be perfect all the time. Um, this kind of admiration is more like the awe that we get in just delighting in someone else's presence. It's the type of um, experience that you have when you walk into the house and your dog's there and your dog is just like, just loves you, just like cannot stop, like just delighting in you showing up. And so the admiration doesn't need to be like, hey, I admire you for getting good grades. It doesn't need to be performative. It's more like, you know, when you admire something, you you look at it in a loving way. Like we, we regard our children. They need to be regarded and sense that we are an audience, not an audience, you know, critiquing them, not an audience deciding whether or not they're worthy, just an audience that like freaking loves to show up for their show. I love to be here in the show of you, mm. right? And when all of those things are there enough, not everyone's, not everyone's going to do this all the time. Like I get real annoyed at my kids at bedtime. I can't say that this is the experience they have most nights at bedtime with me. Most nights at bedtime, I'm like, okay, mm -hmm, no, no more water. We're not doing any more water. Okay, yeah, no, <clears throat> Remy, no, Remy, stop. Do not put your feet on my head. We're done. Okay, I need to take a break. Mom needs to take a break. You know, I mean, this. so I don't want, I don't want to paint the picture that like somehow we become these like Zen parents who 24 seven are offering these things to our kids, but are we doing it enough? You know, I would say at every... And every day, is there a moment at which you express that um, admiration and delight? Is there a moment at which you tune into what your child is feeling? You give them that attunement. Is there a moment when you are affectionate? Um, and are you actually paying attention? Are you actually paying them the type of attention that you are paying to your to-do list, to your phone, to all of the other things in the world? Um, do they feel important to you? And when kids have that experience, it really helps them feel loved, lovable, worthy, calm, safe, all the goodies. Which would then turn into them being a securely attached mm -hmm. adult who has tons of gifts to give mm -hmm. to the world. Yeah, because if you grow up with this experience relationally, your internal narrative becomes, I deserve connection. I'm worthy of connection. I am lovable as I am. My messiness is not unacceptable. I am accepted. I am belonging. I have belonging, right? And so then you go into adulthood and you're not looking for 
validation. You're not looking for belonging. You're not looking for a sense of worthiness, right? The difference between growing up in a secure home and entering an adulthood, you have a suitcase full of security, worthiness, confidence. You grow up in an insecure home, that suitcase isn't filled. So you now go out into the world and instead of being able to be like, where's my adventure? You're looking for the things you need to go on the adventure. And that takes a lot of labor and time. Um, and you know, our kids are going to have to do some labor. It's not about being afraid of labor, but we don't want them to do that kind of labor. We want them to have their bags packed with all the things they need so they can go out there and make the world an even better place, an even safer place, an even richer place, and enjoy it while they do it. Eli, I am struggling with the fact that you call yourself a nerd instead of an expert <laughs> because <laughs> you are an expert to me, right? Um, but speaking about the, the fact that you do call yourself a nerd, um, you have a platform which is called Attachment Nerd. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about what that is? So I've been practicing as a therapist for about 17 years. And two years ago, I hit a point in my journey where I felt really deeply a need to help people prevent some of the wounds that I had been helping people heal. Um, it's powerful to be a healer and to be with people on that end of things, but it also, after some time, it feels kind of sad. It's like, you know what, if only these parents had known this early on. So I decided I was ready to start spreading the news outside of my practice and in other places. And I started running my mouth on the internet. Um, and that's where attachment nerd started on Instagram, on TikTok, and Facebook. And so I do these little videos and I try and give tips and ideas and insights to help people understand what really matters in an attachment relationship and how to provide that for your children, for yourself, for your partners. Um, and then I created a bunch of guides, courses, and a membership at attachment nerd that is specifically for parents, attachmentnerd.com. Uh, to learn all of this, to like be able to be in community and have a support because we all need a village, but not everybody has a village. So I'm working on trying to create that village where parents can come in and be honest and be vulnerable and get support. Um, and then I wrote my book and I put on live workshops um, and I put on in-person workshops. And I mean, basically, I'm on a very intense mission to increase the statistics of secure attachment. So right now, statistically, it's about 50-50. 50% of the population globally has a secure attachment. 50% has an insecure attachment. I want to be on my deathbed. Let's see, how old am I? I'm four, I mean, like 60 years from now, I want to be on my deathbed at 101. And I want to know that the statistic is now 80-20. 80% secure, 20%. Like that would make me die a happy woman. So that's what attachment nerd is. And that's why I'm here with you. <laughs> well, I think that you're doing enough work that hopefully when you are on your deathbed <laughs> 101, <laughs> you can see thank that you. statistic. I hope so too. Um, thank, thank you for attachment nerd. Thank you for the work that you've done to be able to have a platform where you can share such wonderful and insightful information because it is, it's so helpful. I'm so it really glad you is. feel that way. That's um, like such an honor. They're just, how cool. cool. Thank you. I want to ask you one last question, and, and this is a big one. If you could use your platform to encourage anyone who's struggling with attachment and may not feel secure enough to talk to somebody or even mm -hmm. feel their feelings, what would you say okay. to them? There is a difference between feeling worthy of connection and healing 
and being worthy of connection and healing. Every single human being on earth is worthy of connection and healing. Not everybody feels worthy of it. So even if you don't feel worthy, even if it feels like I just got to quit my belly aching, it wasn't that bad. What's my problem? Why can't I get over it? You deserve spaces to be seen, heard, and nurtured. And those spaces, when you choose them, will be the difference between feeling like you don't deserve it and feeling like you do. Because it is in relationship that we can sense our worthiness. It is in connection that we begin to feel that we might actually not be that bad after all. We might just be human and we might just all be in this together. And there might not be good ones and bad ones, but just those who have had the experience of feeling loved and supported and those who have not yet had that experience. Don't give up. There you go. That was awesome. This this has been awesome. Like I'm I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to to share space with you and allow you to talk about this because it's so important. It really is. And I think a good number of us struggle with Mm -hmm. attachment. I know I have had such severe insecurity my whole life and I've struggled with Mm -hmm. wondering why. And now I know that it could be because my brain didn't develop properly because my parents were struggling with their attachment because it could have been, you know, some generational stuff that had been passed down. So it, it gives answers and it validates so many feelings and so many well, questions. It is so. such a gift to Thank have you. your caring, tender, thoughtful presence and to be able to bear witness to you as a man, as a black man who is holding space for tenderness and feelings. Like that's some ballsy sh- and I'm into it. I appreciate that so, so much. Um, I do so, so much. I want to circle back and allow that to sink in i receive that i love it love it (laughs) if someone wanted to find you online or on social media where okay so my website is www.attachmentnerd.com my coaching resource so i have a whole group of coaches that help support people in resolving their attachment stuff and making their relationships better www.attachmentlabs.com and then anywhere you do your social medias except for um, Twitter. I haven't never gotten onto Twitter, which I know is now called X. Anyway, everybody except X, you can find me at attachment nerd. And that's my handle on all those other spaces and look forward to seeing you wherever is best for you. And lastly, my book, Securely Attached, how to uh, transform your attachment patterns into loving, lasting, romantic relationships. You can buy that on Amazon, or if you don't use Amazon, you can go to my Instagram at attachment nerd and there's a link in my bio that will take you to all the other purchasing options. So yeah, that's all the goodies. <laughs> Sweet. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for this. You, this Dawn. has been so great. Um, I love what you do, Eli. So thank you. Um, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. And for thank the you for you being do. here and being a part of it because it's not something anybody can do alone. It's something we all do together. So thank you. <laughs>